You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Vince and Raj, a podcast for everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs. You know who you are. Now here's your host, Raj. Two hundred. Woo! We made it. <laughs> we just finished up what has been one of the funnest interviews that we've ever had on this show. I would hazard to say, on any of our podcasts, that was so much fun. This is our two hundredth episode. We wanted to do something fun, something different than our norm of just discussing the new comics coming out or something else that we'd read, kind of thing. We wanted to be. More than that, and what we planned on doing initially is discussing a variety of origin stories because some people think of be it Superman or Batman or whatever and don't realize that they didn't always originate with, you know, Green Lantern number one or Justice League number one or things like that. Sometimes they just, they appeared out of nowhere in like Batman detective comics, number 27, the first uh, justice league was actually in brave and the bold number 38. The first um, green lantern with Alan Scott was actually in all Americans, all American comics, number 16. And the reason that I wanted to do that as well, and maybe one day we will was because it's funny when we read comics now, because Writing has changed. Opinions of comic books have changed. And you have a lot more adults reading comics now than at any other point in history. And a lot of these characters that we love now actually originated just as a throw-off story that was tossed in that the writers or publishers had no idea how well it would do. And it's the success of those issues which determined whether or not those characters continued and came back. And we owe that to young readers in a lot of cases. It's the 10 and 12-year-olds that were reading detective comics that said, Batman is freaking awesome. We want more of it, <laughs> which then prompted them to write more of that character. And the same goes for all of the heroes that we love today. If they were written in that time, there weren't a lot of adults reading comics in that time. It's the kids who decided what was popular, what, what it is that they wanted to read more of. And we owe so much to them because of those characters that we now love so much. So we read a whole bunch of different ones and we planned on having a full episode talking on that as well as tacking on our interview. That said, we did our interview first, of course, with Mr. Jim Zub, who anybody who listens to this show knows we love him. Not just him, his work, everything about him. He's awesome. So we had our interview, which just ended and clocked in at about two hours. <laughs> so there's really not much point in turning this into a three hour long episode. We already had our fill of awesome because... This interview was beginning to end fantastic, not because of Vince and I, but because of Jim. And he gave us information about Wayward that we never would have guessed. Stuff with Samurai Jack, which was, I really don't want to spoil anything. You're going to have to listen to the episode. But man, I'm not kidding. This is not a trying to sell you on it. You will want to listen to this interview. And we talked about Skull Kickers and a bunch of other stuff. So 
we're going to bypass on that origin story stuff and maybe go back to it some other time and just leave you with this absolutely incredible, fun interview that we had with Jim Zub. Yeah, the great thing about talking to Zub is he's not a writer that does comics. Like, he's been a comic fan since he was a yeah. kid, as we discuss in the issue, in the interview. And you really feel that passion come across when he's talking about his own work. Yeah. Like, he wants the stuff he writes to live up to the expectations he set out for himself when he was eight years old. And I don't know if he thinks he's there yet, but we, we certainly, certainly do. do. Yeah, definitely. So with that said, Vince, congratulations. It's been a hell of a ride. Enjoyed every single episode. And Are you sure about that? Cannot wait for the next 200. Sure You're supposed to say enjoy. you are looking forward to it as well, asshole. I look Um, (laughs) forward to making you read more terrible comics. Was that so hard? All right, (laughs) folks, enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to this. Of course, you can check out the show notes at comicbookinformer.com. Let us know what you thought about this interview as well. And find us on Twitter at CBInformer, and we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the interview. With this being our 200th episode, we're happy to be joined by someone who's been on the show in the past and has consistently been a favorite of ours, and that is Mr. Jim Sub. Between Skull Kickers, Samurai Jack, Pathfinder, and Wayward, he's managed to write a variety of different genres expertly, and these represent just a few of the fantastic issues he's written during the last few years. One of our recent favorite comics, not just from Image, but from everyone, has been wayward. It manages to hit on several of our sweet spots, being authentic Japanese settings and characters and the mystical. How long was this project rattling around in the old brain pan before you were able to actually get it out with Image? Or was it just something that you kind of came up with recently? Um, it, was, it was sort of an interesting process. It was, it's kind of a mixture of those two. So... Uh, the broader kind of idea and some of the big picture concepts behind Wayward about kind of mythology in the modern world were – they were part of a, another story pitch that I was putting together. But the one sort of element that I wasn't sure of is is where I was going to set it. So there was this idea about talking about mythology, you know, making sure that we found a – that whether it was going to be North America or Europe or somewhere that had – like a strong mythological bent. And so Europe seemed like a natural kind of like location for it. And then um, Steve Cummings was an artist that I knew from our time together when we were working at Udon and he and I had always talked about doing a project. And so those two things sort of just kind of came together. And when we started talking, one of the things that he said was really important to him is he wanted to do a story that was set in Tokyo that, you know, he lives in Yokohama, which is just outside Tokyo his, uh, you know, he's, he's raising a family there and he really, one of his passions was the idea that, um, you know, Japan is, is rarely presented in North American media. Japan's usually presented as this sort of like either weird mystic place of temples and ninjas or just like high tech wonderland. And, and, you know, the nuance and the variety of stuff, let alone the history, you know, was something that he wanted to show in a, in a more, realistic way and in a more in-depth way and when we started talking i realized that this idea about mythology that i had would lend itself really well to japanese myths japanese monsters 
in the lore that we both really loved. And so this idea that was originally kind of untethered suddenly felt like, you know, Japan was the only place we could put it. And as soon as I sort of cast those bigger ideas, we just started jamming ideas, you know, back and forth. So I guess um, this would have been late 2013. We were putting it together. It would have been in the fall because I took the original pitch to New York Comic-Con and I showed it to a few publishers there and had some conversations about where, you know, where I saw the project. And um, that was really what got it going. So then you you had the idea and you needed the setting or whatnot, but did, were there any of the characters, strong ideas that you had already that you wanted to work with those? Or did those just come about as you figured out the settings and where you wanted to take place, the story to take place? Um, well, the idea of, of Rory, I mean, the character wasn't named, but someone coming into this environment right. and sort of learning about it as the reader learns about it. That was kind of core right from the beginning, wherever it was going to be set. Um, all the other characters, without getting into spoiler territory, they've got kind of ideas and, and powers and things that specifically relate to the Japanese setting. So they all kind of came afterwards. And um, in the case of Ayane, that was uh, Steve's idea for that character that we kind of ran with. Um, in the case of like Nikaido uh, and Shirai, those were ideas that I kind of built off of some of the mythic stuff that I had been reading. And I thought, okay, this would be a really good fit, or this has like a cultural meaning that we can kind of tie into with the Japanese setting. And so most of the stuff was developed specifically with Japan in mind. It wasn't sort of those, those the original idea was really kind of broad and loose. It was more like a theme rather than a specific character story at that point. So are those four char- heroes going to be like our main cast going forward or is the uh, the core team going to expand any? Well, funny you mention that, you know, the, the first arc ends with quite a quite a shakeup in terms of I think the expectation was that those characters were all going to kind of team up and start kicking ass and then right from the get-go we kind of shake up that concept and mm-hmm. um, without giving anything away for the, the second story arc which starts in March it's uh, we're trying to be pretty non-traditional about it like I don't want readers to be able to guess exactly where we're going with it so we're kind of throwing some of those cliches about who the you know what the team is or even what their purpose is or how they come together stay together what they're going to be kind of into disarray right from the get-go and that's very much on purpose like we don't want like i didn't just want it to be okay it's a team of you know mutants slash whatever like we didn't just want to do a super team and so the there's more gray area to to pretty much every aspect of it what their what their mission's going to be, how they're going to go about it, and kind of how they see the world is is really focused around their kind of teen Japanese angle. And, and the bigger forces that are at work, they're not aware of and how they're going to get kind of pulled into it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty complex in that way. It's not just a simple sort of thing of saying, okay, so they're going to hang out and, and kick ass. Like, Yes, there's going to be combat and yes, there's going to be action, but there's a lot more going on than that. And uh, in the second arc, readers are going to get a a much better idea in terms of how 
not necessarily how deep the rabbit hole goes, but that, you know, where more of this is headed in that way. Well, bravo just for not wanting to go off on the cliches that we've seen how many times. I mean, that's something that Vince and I have to talk about pretty much every single week because it's gotten to the point where we are so used to their almost having to be certain cliches that we accept it at least when it's done properly. So fine, there's a cliche, but let's see how you handle it and you do a good job with it. But the idea of a writer point blank wanting to avoid those because they've been done to death, that's, again, it's so nice to hear that coming from a comic book writer. Well, thanks. I, you know, and it, it's it's weird, right? Because you can never avoid everything. Like, you've got to yeah. play into certain sort of expectations or you need to communicate certain ideas that people might recognize. But uh, by the same nature, I didn't just want it to be like, like you know, uh, that there was only one kind of way of doing it. And, you know, the the in the last issue there, when the whole building kind of comes down and Rory's, you know, everything's destroyed, like the whole thing, the whole apartment blows up and they're gone. It really kind of, you know, flies in the face of the idea of, okay, here's the chosen one. There's the heroes off you go kind of thing. And that was really important to me that we sort of say, okay, there's, there's a lot more here. And right from the get go with issue six, uh, I'm hoping that people will see that as well, that we're going to be opening up not only with other characters and the characters that we've met before are still going to be a part of that story, but that there's other things happening as well. So of the characters, who's been your favorite to write so far? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's interesting. Wayward really is the hardest thing I'm writing right now, probably really? because like it's a dramatic story. There is comedy every so often, but it's a much more dramatic story and a tense story. And so even the characters, like, like Ayani's probably the most fun because she's probably closest to the type of character that people are used to seeing from me. And so it's easy for me to kind of fall into, okay, here's a wacky character, a weird character, or, or you know, the kind of comic relief strange. But, um, but I don't know that, like, it's weird. She And she's really popular with the fans. Like, they love her because she's got that kookiness and... Hey, cats. Everyone loves cats. Um, but but in many ways, it's like I kind of like being able to sort of stretch myself a little bit. And in the current arc that I'm writing right now, uh, Nikaido, who's that quiet kid mm-hmm. who you're not quite sure about, he's really interesting to me because he's you, you, I'm trying to communicate things about him without just It's harder to write. Like, it's a lot more subtle yeah, to write. And it, it is subtle. And it's like, you know... It can be difficult because I'm also trying to explain to Steve, okay, here's what we need to bring across in the artwork without people just saying it. Or this is something that we want to, you know, build up and, and maybe people won't realize it at first, but then they go back and they piece it together because we've given them the evidence there over time. Now that's And that's one of those things. Yeah. Do you find it more challenging because of because you have to think at the back of your head of the age group that you're writing for or does that not even come into play because if you're writing for a specific age group it might be harder to work with subtleties like that than it would if it's if you're writing just strictly to an older audience kind of thing. Does that ever um, come into play? You know, I I try not to worry like I the book is is an M-rated book, and we've got swearing in it and whatnot. Right. And and I've met already some teenage readers, and and I met like a a twelve year old girl that was reading it, and her parents <laughs> were actually at 
Rose City Comic Con and they wanted to buy the new issue because there was two issues out. And I felt a little awkward because I didn't want to like call the kid out. But by the same token, on the first page is like the word fuck. And I just thought, oh, no, you know, we're going to have this like this kid's going to get it's going to be awkward. But the parents knew and they were totally cool with it. It doesn't work yeah, like that. The, the writing that you're kid. doing isn't um isn't being gratuitous. It's just showing the world for what it is. And so much as it is. Right. And it's how teenagers love. speak. And that's yes. really how I look at it. Like I'm not going out of my way to, you know, it's not a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Or anything, but <laughs> but it, it's and there is violence, but I try not to just make it, you know, grotesque for the sake of grotesque. Exactly. Or whatever. Like we're trying to just kind of build a story and not be worried about whether or not we can put something in there. But it, rather than sort of like, oh, man, I'm going to shock and awe people with the weirdness or with the disgust, that's really not. No, it doesn't come off like that. Yeah. And that's so, I, I, you know, to answer your, your other question, I'm not specifically writing it for a teen audience. Like, I, I feel like it's a story about teenagers and I want them to sound right and kind of feel right, but that I don't sit there and I, like I'm not trying to pander to anyone or sort of go, okay a teenager won't get that. Like I'm saying, look, you know, bigger themes and bigger ideas as we go through, if I do it right, it'll resonate hopefully across the board. Well, I'm on my fourth teen raising right now. And I can tell you, I would have no problems letting mine read this. It it comes off authentic and very good. And it's never gratuitous. Thank you. You know, and I think it's something that Steve and I both feel really good about is the fact that it, it, it reads well and it, it, you know, the characters have a have a voice and it sounds genuine and that means a lot to me yeah you know? In addition to the language and whatnot, a big part of the maturity that I, I know caught a lot of people by surprise was Rory's history with cutting. How hard right. has that been to write and handle delicately? It was you know it was weird um, it was as soon as we put together the original outline, I had an aside written in there about it and it was sort of it sat there for a while. And I took it out at one point and then I kind of put it back in. And it was something that I just sort of, my fear was exactly kind of what you were saying, like, like writing it. So it's, it, so it's not gratuitous. So it was, it was real and it felt mature, but it didn't feel like, Ooh, this will get people talking like that. You know, it was, it was like, this is a strong aspect of a character. And I think we can present it in a way that is, that feels dramatically appropriate and it, it should surprise people, but not be like, oh, well, you clearly just threw that in there because that's a that's a talking point or that's going to, you know, it wasn't it, it, it was about trying to tap into something that I feel is uh, very teen, you know, a, as a problem. And then the research that I did, that was always what came across is that it's like this powerful outlet because they don't know where to put an emotional problem or they don't know where to put, like they, they have no other way of expressing their frustration or, you know, whether it's hormonal or whether it's anger or whether it's, you know, has been traumatic and she's going through this difficult, difficult transition. And when she hits a certain wall, this is how she deals with it. And it's not the only thing about her. She's not a one note character and it's not, it doesn't have to be a part of every scene in order to be relevant. And, it, you know, she's more than the sum of her parts, but this is part of who she is at this time and how she deals with this pain. And, you know, that was what I really wanted 
to deliver on. And the letters we got from people were very touching. And even the people that were shocked by it, um, you know, were, they were kind of impressed or if they had their own sort of stories to tell in the letters, they would say, you know, that's a very accurate kind of portrayal or the thought process or the words. It sounds right. Like it feels appropriate. And I thought, you know, I'm very proud of that, that we were able to treat it in the, it sounds weird to say respect because it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a condition and it's a difficulty. But when I say respectful, sort of like treating it in a way that, that comes across as genuine. You're going to get a lot of compliments while you're here with us tonight. <laughs> and anybody who's listened to the show knows Thank that you. we are very, um, very honest. And so if we don't agree with something, we will say why and we won't slander the person for their work, but we'll give our honest opinion. So when we say something that is, um, complimentary, it's, it's not meant to be that we're fanboys or anything, but listen, this was well done and we want you to know that. And I grew up with this and that was me when I was young. It's not something oh, really? that I share, but that was oh, me. Wow. Now, without sounding like I'm slamming another writer, say, because that's not what I'm doing. We read Saga. We love Saga. But I've made a point whenever we discuss a new issue of Saga how often there is the shock for the sake of shock. And I, you don't necessarily need to agree with that, but that's been my opinion from the beginning. It's not always a bad thing, but it's definitely there. And it's something that, because I write as well, I don't like that. To me, that's a cheat. And it doesn't, I, I, I just don't like it. So when something is put in a story, it doesn't even have to be delicately, but it has to be, like you said, with respect. And it's not just put in for shock, but because of, because it's authentic. You can still be honest without being shocking for the sake of being shocking. And this, from somebody who went through this, was very, very well handled. It was with respect. It was honest. And it was true to what what that is growing up. So again, you did a fantastic job with that element. Oh, very cool. And that, that means a lot to me, you know, and, and like I said, the letters that we got from people were, were really, uh, they were, they were wonderful. And, and it really took me, took me aback because I wasn't sure how that was going to come across. And even when I was writing the script to the the second issue, it's funny because um, in the first issue we show, when Rory's having breakfast with her mother and she pulls her hand away, you can see some of the scars on her arm. Um, and I thought people, well, people would assume that she was being abused by her father or something like that. But the majority of readers didn't even pick up on that at all. Like they didn't even see the scars that were there. And so <clears throat> when I got tweets from people, they were like, wow, that came out of left field. And I was like, really? I felt like we had no, it was we telegraphed something. You know, and and so it was it was it was nice to to sort of know, you know, to hear from other people that they felt it, you know, that it worked properly. And then especially when they looked back at that first issue and then compared, they were like, oh, okay, you know, it it is a buildup. And again, you know, in the in the in the later chapters, you know, it sort of gets referenced again. But I didn't want it to be like in the. in the third issue, when they go off and they fight at the end of it, the fight, she's super, super tense and she starts holding her arm because mm-hmm. that's where those scars are. And she's sort of thinking about how she feels like she's alone and she feels like they're they're never going to accept her and that sort of stuff. And she's like 
she wouldn't do that in front of them, but that's sort of like her fallback. She's starting to feel that throbbing kind of tension coming up. And so I wanted to sort of show that without just, you know, I didn't just want to have a caption that said, man, I really want to cut myself. Like, I just didn't want it to be gratuitous, but equally, if you, if you read and you're following along, you can pick up on some of those added sort of subtleties, you know? It's, it's definitely powerful. So in addition to all the great writing, one of the things that I think adds a lot to the comic is the essays at the back from Zach Davidson. How did you first approach him for those? It's funny, actually. Um, Originally, I was kind of uh, the the book had already been announced and I was scrambling a little bit because I knew I wanted to have um, essays in the back. I knew I wanted to have that added content. And so, you know, I thanks to the the time I spent at Udon and, and my love of manga and knowing a lot of people in the publishing industry, I was just starting to reach out to people to get names uh, in terms of who could write some essays or, or maybe particular subjects with different writers. And it was going to be a bit of a task trying to find all sorts of different people. One of the first essays I knew I wanted to have was something about the Japanese high school education system because I knew that was going to appear in issue two and I felt like we needed something to really help tie that together and so I talked to a couple people about that and they were sort of like I can write it but I don't feel like I'm an expert and you know maybe I could put you in touch with someone and it was just I was like man I'm trying to get production done on the first issue and we just announced the book and you know the solicits and everything else and I feel like this is the one area that I'm I haven't spent enough time getting pulled together. And that honestly, the timing could not have been better. Uh, Brandon Seffert, who does uh, witch doctor. And he also, he did the, um, the, the, uh, uh, Oh geez. Museum of the weird that, uh, the, the Disney kingdoms, uh, comic okay, that I yeah. did before figment. And so we were sort of in touch because we'd both done the Disney books and we'd become friends. You know, I'd seen him on the convention circuit and whatnot. And just after Wayward got announced, he just he messaged me out of the blue on Facebook, and he said, "Dude, I am so friggin' excited for this book. I love Japanese lore and all this stuff. There's a guy I have to introduce you to. His name's Zach Davison. He's a translator. Uh, you know, he does. He, he's lived in Japan for years, and he's literally written books on Japanese monsters and spirits and lore." Like you need this guy. <laughs> like you should, you should just be in touch with him. And even if you just bounce your scripts off him, I think he'd be a really great resource. And he's a super nice guy. And this book is like his bread and butter. He will, he will freak out. And so I said, okay, you know, sure. Like introduce me. And I was kind of intimidated actually because I thought, you know, I'm doing research, and Steve and I are both fans of this stuff. But this guy's an actual expert. I don't want to. God, I hope he doesn't think I'm I'm just misappropriating all this cultural stuff. This is, you know, I was kind of nervous. So uh, when I first messaged him, you know, he said, you know, can you send me some of the documentation? Can you send me the pitch and the scripts? And I would love to check it over, uh, you know, to, to see what it's like before I can tell you if I want to write essays. Because, like, my fans are very much, like, they love this stuff for real, the genuine stuff. And I don't want this to be like cheap knockoffs. And I thought, okay, crap. Now I'm, it's like an audition to get this guy to write some content for me. 
And as soon as he read it, he emailed me back very enthusiastically. And he said, I can tell you really love this stuff and you're, you're hitting all the right marks. Uh, this is, I, I desperately want to be a part of this. And if you let anyone else write these essays, I'm going to come get you. <laughs> and so, and so he went from being like kind of unsure and I was kind of unsure to us both being just like drooling maniacs for this thing. And he's been one of our biggest, you know, boosters. Uh, now he just constantly, uh, he, he, you know, sends me all sorts of amazing articles or he analyzes the, the scripts I've written and then he sends me other lore and things that he thinks might be useful. Um, those yokai files that he does with the monster profiles, kind of funny thing was originally, you know, I said, look, I, I don't just want you writing this stuff for free. I will pay you, you know, a word rate. It's not great, but, you know, hey, like this is what I can afford. And he said, you know, no problem. And then he sent me the first essay and he said, oh, by the way, I did this write up of the monster uh, because I couldn't stop writing. <laughs> I know it's more than the word count, but is that okay? And I was like, dude, I, you know, I want to use this content, but like, I can't, I, you know, we're, it's a creator owned book. We don't have a big budget. And he goes, no, no, no. I'll write the monster profiles just because I want to just tell me you'll publish them. Never fire like, well, this guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> and so he actually wrote more content than I could even fit in the issues. Cause we only have so many pages with the standard image ads and everything else. So some of that's going to show up in the trade paperback. I felt guilty. I was like, you're writing content I can't put in the book right now, but I swear to you, we will use it. It will show up. So we've got extra stuff that's going to show up in the trade paperback. And if, you know, I'm hoping we get to do like a deluxe hardcover and oh, we'll dude. do even more lore stuff in there. Okay. If, so, if you ever do a trade, a hardcover, you let me know and hang on to one and sign it for me. I will buy it <laughs> off your ass. It'll be my absolute pleasure. Well, we're, one of the things we're talking about doing, um, Emerald City Comic Con's got this kind of tradition they've been doing for the last few years where if there's a new kind of uh, a trade coming out for a book that they really like around the time of their show, like they did it with Skull Kickers back in, I guess this would have been 2011. We did the first trade paperback and it was the same regular trade paperback, but we did a limited run hardcover version of it that you could only get at, at Emerald City. And then they did it with um, uh, Sex Criminals last year where they had a hardcover version of the regular trade. So you know, they still you still might get the deluxe sort of two volume in one, but as a special kind of collectible, they did this hardcover. So we're talking to Emerald City. We might end up doing the same kind of thing this year, where we do a a limited run version of the regular uh, trade paperback with a different cover and, oh, and dude. as sort of a limited convention. Thing. I will yeah. never forgive you if you don't get me one of those. <laughs> never. I've been, well, I've been right, telling then. myself for years out. I need to get out to Emerald City, so that might be a good excuse. <laughs> Emerald City's, I'm not saying it's a phenomenal show. It's what's amazing about it is it has all the the kind of trappings of one of those shows, you know, that's got like the the classic kind of Comic Con. You've got your sci-fi guests and you've got your animation and your video games and everything else. But it never ever forgets that comics kind of come first or at the or at the heart of it. And um, the comic content is just stellar. It's really really good. It's one of my absolute favorite shows every year. And uh, the guy that runs it, Jim Demonacos, he's become a dear friend. Uh, and, and yeah, I, you know, I don't miss it now for the world. It's one of my absolute favorites. And because of the timing of it, it's always in March. It feels like the first 
real comic show of the year. Like, there might be other conventions that happened before it, but it's really, they're just like the trailer to the movie. Like, it's the first real show for me, you know, every year. I feel like, okay, Emerald City's on? Okay, now we're in convention season, you know? I was actually talking with Zach over Twitter over the essays and saying just how much I absolutely love them to the point where what I do now when I get the new issues is I read the essays first, then oh, I read sweet. the comic. It gives you a lot of context for so for much issue. more. Totally. And, and, and not just that, but it gives me an appreciation of the work that you're doing that I know that you're being authentic to what it is. Like, it makes me wonder when you're working on something again, are you tapping him first for either an essay or something so that you can brush up on it and make sure it's perfect for it? Or you've already researched it enough that, you know, um, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it depends on the issue. So in some cases I, you know, I'm sending him the script, like the outline. So he knows what's happening in terms of the broad, you know, kind of uh, story beats. And then he throws out some ideas where I could do an essay about that, or I could do an essay about that. Or I'm saying, this is what the essay needs to be about. Is that okay? Kind of stuff. Um, in the case of the, the one issue that he really helped boost was the one uh, in issue four, when they go into the underground the tunnels. Yes. And so <laughs> what happened was, is that, is that, you know, Steve and I were talking and I said, I need somewhere where it's, accessible to the city but it's hidden it's a like if we can make this a real place like it's sort of like hidden in plain sight how do we do that and he came up with the idea he said you know there's a bunch of abandoned subway tunnels all over the city when they you know they, there's so many subway tunnels in japan and as the neighborhoods change and as the the districts sort of move or population growth in different directions they it's too expensive to fill this stuff in. So they just abandon a tunnel and they make a new one or they reappropriate an old tunnel and extend it or add a new fork off of it and leave the old one just, just abandoned. They, they seal them up. And I was like, okay, but you know, what about all the utility entrances and all that stuff? He's oh, you know, they, people get into them all the time. And nowadays, especially with like the kind of geocaching or, you know, people doing like um, urban explorer type of stuff. Yeah there are photo essays of people who have gone down to these abandoned subway tunnels. And so we found some of these, he found some Japanese websites that had photos of the Ueno tunnels and they aren't as, um, they're narrower than what we had in the comic, but we just said, okay, you know, fictional license, we'll just blow yeah. it out bigger. Or we'll say that they burrowed sideways and expanded it for their layer and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but it is a real thing and it really exists. And, and, I like that aspect of the series that wherever possible, we try and put real locations into it to the point where Steve and I are sending like Google, uh, you know, earth links back and forth and to like kind of casting locations where he's saying to me, this is, you know, maybe we could be over here or this kind of neighborhood would work well for this sort of thing. And, and I think it just, it lends an air of authenticity, even if the writer, or even sorry, even if the reader never knows, what these exact places are. Yeah. Oh yeah. If we did do a deluxe hardcover, I think one of the things we'd want to do is kind of peg some of this stuff on a map, you know, definitely. If, by the way, if either Steve or Zach ever want to come on for an interview as well, if you're talking to them, let them know, we would love to have either and or both of them on just to shoot the breeze about this series as well. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they'd be interested. Zach, you know, it's, it's been so great because, you know, Zach, like I said, he, he just, he really boosts, 
whenever there's an interview or wherever there's an article, whenever there's a tweet, he's all over it. He's so, so enthusiastic. And uh, I got to meet him in person over the summer and he was so just incredibly uh, kind and complimentary. And, you know, I still feel a bit like as much as we're working hard and trying to make this authentic, like I worry about that idea of, oh, you're just these guys kind of using, you know, Japanese stuff. And it's like, no, no, like we want to say something bigger about culture and we want to say something bigger about Japan. And, you know, in the not to try and say that that I'm on that level, but in the same way, like, you know, kind of the British invasion of writers in the 80s, like Neil Gaiman wasn't living in America, but he can say something about America, you know what I mean? Or, or Garth Ennis is, you know, this Irish guy who's writing about America and preacher, and no one said to him, you're not allowed to write about America, you know what I mean? No, I, you're from somewhere else. It's like, no, you know, I think you can bring an outside perspective. I think you can kind of get a new you know, take a, take a, a point of view and take an opinion and sort of build on it in terms of a, of a theme. And that's really, I think that's going to become more apparent also in the second arc where, um, you know, one of the things I didn't want Rory to be is I didn't want her to be that cliche of like the great white hope coming to another culture and saving them or something, you know, like we're not going to pull our, Pocahontas by way of Fern Gully by way of Avatar kind of like I don't want to have this kind of only hey, Fern Gully was amazing. <laughs> What's up? Well, you know what I mean. Like I, I didn't want to have that kind of <laughs> cultural appropriation where you're just like, oh, it doesn't matter unless you know the the white guy comes to save the day. Like I definitely want there to be, you know, the majority of the characters are Japanese in Japan, you know, and it, it's about them. As and it, it comes off as such. Than it just being about her. Yeah, it comes off as such. But the other thing that you have to keep in mind, too, is I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. Because if you look at the number of comics that are out right now that are taking place in Japan, that are being respectful enough of the setting and its people to do the research that you're doing, let's try to count how many of those exist. Because I really can't well, think of too many. Is I just want, you know, like I'd rather be too, like I don't want to be careful in terms of the story. I still want to make it dramatic and exciting. And like, I don't mind taking risks there. But in terms of the cultural stuff or in terms of like, I didn't, you know, I was already a little bit nervous when we were starting off because I didn't want people to be like, ah, oh, it's a knockoff manga. And I was like, no, I want it to have, you know, Steve's obviously got, um, you know, manga elements to the way he draws and he's definitely got a Japanese approach, but this is still in a, North American style yeah. comic in terms of the pacing and in terms of the storytelling and in terms of the the action, you know, we can tell a story in Japan about Japan and that doesn't make it a manga. You know what I mean? So. Right. But at the same time, like still reading <laughs> through it, I'm definitely picking up on a lot of those anime and manga vibes. Like, are there any particular sure. influences or is that just kind of a side effect of setting a story in Japan? You know, I think anime and manga are obviously part of the culture. They're part of the the art and the creative culture of Japan. And so they make their way into it. And Steve and I are both obviously big fans and influenced by this stuff. But I don't know that we were... One of the, It's funny, I, we probably went almost too much the other direction, where uh, in the first story arc, Steve, whenever we would draw like a... a a city location he'd be like you know there would be like anime billboards or there would be like magazine covers or things and i said don't show anime and manga 
And he was like, really? You know, that's like really part of Japan. And I'm like, I know, but people are expecting that. Like, that's kind of, I don't want it to be about that. We, we let more of that in in the second story arc. I feel like we're a little more comfortable with what the series is and that we're not a manga, you know what I mean? So I feel like we let more of that in. And, you know, I'll, I'll be a little bit more open to that sort of idea. So one of the new characters that we introduce, she's a student. And in the first sort of major scene where you meet her, she's on the train reading manga. And there's kind of a neat parallel to what she reads versus sort of the things happening around her. And that's... You know, I think we're a little more comfortable now with saying, see, you know, that's part of Japan, but we're not necessarily a manga. You know what I mean? Um, Steve is a big fan of uh, this series called Air Gear. And if you mm-hmm. look at kind of the action scenes in Air Gear, you see some of that in the way that he draws our fight scenes. Not specific shots. He's not plagiarizing anything, but just in terms of the confidence and the, the quality of the... Um, the the action that gets put into it. Um, I really love Haruki Samura's uh, Blade of the Immortal. It's one of my absolute favorite mangas. And some of that kind of stuff, I love the beautiful kind of atmospheric elements. I don't know that we're necessarily channeling that exactly, but um, it's definitely something that I think about. And I want, you know, I would love to affect readers kind of on that level, particularly when we get into some of the more brutal stuff like in issue five. So coming back around to Steve's art, like you'd mentioned that you found him through Udon, which I'm now realizing is kind of the secret <sighs> to your success is just grabbing Udon artists and letting them do fantastic stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I, well, in, in, in Edwin's case on Skull Kickers, it's sort of the reverse. He wanted to get into Udon and we started working together ah. and then he became an Udon artist afterwards. So, uh, yeah, it was sort of funny. He kind of got his wish in a roundabout way rather than me hiring him from Udon. So, but this is the first, yeah, I was saying this is the first I've seen of Steve's work personally, but what else in his backlog really, uh, made you want to work with him? You know, you know, what's funny is he actually did a bunch of work for, um, mainstream comic publishers, but before when his style was much more kind of standard looking American comics, so he did a, a Deadshot miniseries for DC back in the day. He did a few issues of the original uh, Legends of the Dark Knight over at DC. He did, um, he's done a bunch of stuff. He, d- he did a sci-fi book with Jimmy Palmiotti uh, a couple years ago. Uh, um, you know, it, it's funny. Most of the work that I had seen of his was he was doing illustration work for Udon. So it wasn't necessarily even comics. It was more of like... Um, you know, commercial illustration and design stuff. And he just had this beautiful, delicate line. His backgrounds always look solid and everything had this very real quality to it. And we, you know, I'd gone to Japan with the Udon guys for a few different projects and we got to hang out with him there. And he was just a really honest and easygoing guy. And we just got along really well. Um, what's funny is, is that the, the kind of long-term this wasn't the intent, but the genesis of this project and us working together was, um, would have been around 2010 inadvertently. But I, at the time we wouldn't say, okay, this is going to become wayward, but we did a book for Udon that was celebrating 10 years of the studio. And it was called vent. And in that book, each of the artists at the studio did an illustration of sort of like a dream project that they wanted to do. And uh, Steve did this unbelievable illustration 
of this girl standing at a top, the top of the stairs holding a spiked bat with all those cats around her. And I thought it was such an evocative and amazing image. I thought it was so cool. And I said, dude, what, like, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's just this kind of, I want to do this supernatural story set in Tokyo someday. <laughs> I said, that is so awesome. You know, like, uh, you're hired. You, you gotta let me know. Well, you gotta let me know, you know, when you do that. And, you know, I go off and I do skull kickers and, and yada, yada, yada. And one of the conversation items that came up when Steve and I were talking and it was just sort of like, Oh, congratulations on skull kickers. And you're doing other writing and that's very cool. You know, are you going to do more creator own stuff? And I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to. And he said, well, what kind of ideas do you have? And so I was just sort of banding about general stuff. And then I said, whatever happened to that cat illustration? Like, did you ever do anything with it? And he's like, no, it's just sort of sitting on the back burner. You know, I don't really have a story for it. And I said, Oh, well, you know, I'd, I'd write a story with that character. And then that turned into this discussion about, discussion about the, the mythology sort of story that I wanted to tell. And then I was saying, okay, so what if we use yokai, you know, the Japanese spirits and monsters at the heart of this thing? And then I said, okay, so we have to use that character. So the cover to Wayward Number 1, that iconic image, which is also <laughs> the cover to our trade paperback, that is from the Udon Vent book. The line art, is, it's the exact same picture. That is freaking uh, awesome. It's actually, yeah, five years old now. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the way the things come so, about. Yeah, yeah. It was funny, too, because Steve was like, oh, I could draw that better now. You know, I'll, I'll redraw it. And I said, no, no, we're using that. <laughs> like that. I like that image just the way it is. We're just going to use it. And he was sort of fighting me about it at first, like kind of, oh, no, I, I'm better now. I can do a better one. I'm like, nope, that's all we're going to use. It's good. <laughs> And we got it colored up and, you know, yeah. So really the first appearance of Wayward is in, is in this Udon book called Vent. That is really but it's not awesome. called Wayward and that character has no name and it's just there. God. Before we move on to some other, some of your other work, um, you need another beer or are you doing all right on what you got? No, I'm just sipping away here. I'm good. All right. So let's are move you guys on. Are drinking too? Am you I the only one? Oh, yeah. No, no. This is our 200th episode. Anniversary episode. We're drinking. Kind of quiet. Excellent. So, yeah, before we actually touch on Samurai Jack, I have to tell you, my daughter, who is the one who does the voice at the beginning of the introduction for every show I was telling her, I'm interviewing the guy who wrote, who writes the Samurai Jack. And she just went ballistic. And she said, make sure to tell him <laughs> that your daughter is a huge fan. So there you go. Yay. That's awesome. You know that, that when I meet the Samurai Jack fans at conventions, they're always unbelievably nice and just super, super complimentary, you know, and, and yeah, but that's know, because of what got, you're doing. Everyone on the team. Well, thank you. Everyone on the team is, is working their butts off. And I feel so amazing about the fact that we've had the chance to tell these new stories and really expand upon kind of the mythology of the series and, and that people have um, really taken it, you know, to, to heart that, that we're, that we're doing this and doing it well, you know, and, and Andy and our editor, Carlo and Josh, our colorist, everyone, like we're all super passionate about it and pushing each other to do the best that we can with the series. So you probably don't um, remember when you were on last, we were talking about Samurai Jack and we were saying like just how huge of fans, both Vince and I are of Samurai Jack and you working on this. Like we were really hoping for big things, great things. And I can honestly say that now one of my favorite Samurai Jack story arcs 
was written by you. And it's the story oh, cool. of Samurai Jacqueline in The Scotswoman. Nice. Is now oh, one yeah. of my favorite story arcs of Samurai Jack. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, was, that was just a hoot to work on. Uh, it was great. You know, we, we did the first five part, uh, the, the Threads of Time arc. And I, I, we went out of our way not to bring back characters from the show because we didn't just want it to feel like we were just retreading. But we knew, like, we were going to bring some of those characters back, but we just didn't want it to do it right from the get-go. And, of course, the Scotsman's unbelievably popular, and we love him, too. And so it was like, okay, if we're going to do it, we got to do something that hasn't been done before. And this idea of doing the, the gender swap was just like, okay, let's just play. Let's just have fun with this. And we pitched it. And I thought, okay, they're going to turn it down and we won't get, you know, but I got to try. And so I put together the thing and Carlo, my editor, wasn't sure either. He said, well, you know, they, they'll probably have a problem with it, but just, I like it to so just pitch it. And we sent it to them. And the only feedback we got from Cartoon Network was they just said, this is like a one-time deal, right? Like we're not going to turn all random <laughs> and he's going to turn into a girl every time he hits the water or some crap. And I said, no, 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 one time only. And they were like, okay. You can do it. That's really awesome. <laughs> that is, I've been yeah. telling Vince since that issue, I need a poster of that. A poster <laughs> of Jacqueline Samurai with the Scotswoman. I, I need that in my life. <laughs> it's Thanks. that awesome. Uh, that, was, that was a ton of fun to do. And, uh, you know, doing the, writing the, the lines for the Scotsman, he's got that, that ridiculous affectation to his voice and it's so over the top. And whenever I'm working on something where it's got that that specific a voice, I end up reading all the stuff out loud. My poor wife, she comes by my <laughs> office and I'm just yelling all these lines out loud because I got to make sure they sound like they're coming from the characters. I read almost all the dialogue that I write out you have loud, to. but usually it doesn't have to be quite such a high volume. I read but, everything know, that I write. Yeah. You have to. Oh, you have to. It, it really does. It, it, you realize whether or not the cadence is yep. working and whether or not it sounds... Yep like a person speaking or if it's going to sound mechanical. And so I really do enjoy that, you know, you are acting, you're acting with, through the dialogue. Yeah. And so, it, you know, uh, it's one of the ways that I, I can sort of check that it's working properly. Jack's most recent quest for the broken blade was epic. Yeah. There is no other Thanks. description that's worthy. I, uh, like you managed to give us a history on the sword, a flashback of to, with Jack's father and his relationship with him, Jack nearly being broken himself and the similar similarities between him and the sword, as well as moments of sheer lunacy, like the dinner date with a coup yes. reward, which made me laugh so freaking <laughs> loud. Plus it gave us one of the most spectacular covers with issue 14 that's frame worthy. What was the inspiration for this story arc? Um, you know, it's funny, we were looking and sort of saying, okay, you know, Threads of Time was, you know, your kind of standard MacGuffin quest, and there was nothing really at stake in the sense that, okay, if Jack doesn't get it, he doesn't get to return back to his time, and that's kind of it, and that's that's always the standard kind of Jack yeah. problem, you know, oh, he doesn't get it, okay, he doesn't get to go home, but you kind of expect that, and so I said, what can we do to him that actually has, like, causes damage, like, is, is is something that we can't just shrug and go, oh, he didn't get it again, you know, like, and so I sort of thought very deeply, well, I mean, he has no possessions except for this sword. 
Like his sword is really, you know, his clothes get torn and, it, you know, things can happen to him. But, but the sword is pretty sacrosanct. And I thought, well, if it's sacrosanct, then clearly I have to do something terrible to it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like that was kind of the, you know, once you've got that, you, once you take it for granted, then that's that's your the the chink in your armor. We've got to we got to we got to play there. We got to try something. So that was even in my original pitch for oh, really? the series. I after my um, what's funny is if you go back and and see the original pitch that I sent to IDW, every single story idea that I pitched because I had the main story and the main story was the Threads of Time, which is if we only got to do a miniseries, this is the story we should do. And then I had a, a back sheet that was just like random brainstorming. And every single story that was on there has now been written. I was That's actually awesome. shocked because some of them were really weird throwaway ideas. Um, but they all worked their way. They all became actual issues of the series. And each, you know, with each story, we got more trust from Cartoon Network and from uh, IDW. So, like, uh, there's a story coming up in issue 19 that has the return of those, you know, the archaeologist dogs and I, from the first um, couple episodes. Uh-huh. And I had this weird idea with them. And when I originally pitched it in the document, Carlos was like, ah, you know, that's the only story I could sort of take or leave. And then, you know, later on I said, I really want to do that dog story. I think it'd be really fun. And he's like, if you want to do it, I'm up for it because I trust you. You know, and that's the difference a year makes, working together yeah. and kind of building up. And now you know, okay. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to half-ass it. Like, let's deliver something worthy. The One of the, the little bullet points just says, you know, Jack's sword is, is broken and he's out without his weapon for the first time. You know, can you find a way to get it reforged? And that was just a bullet point. It was just this, I didn't realize it was going to be some five-part epic, but that was in the original document that says, hey, here's a thing we could do. And uh, we came back to it and, and really blew it out, you know. Well, you're talking about having to go to the Cartoon Network with just turning Jack into a female character for a couple of episodes, or issues, I should say. Yeah. You're giving an origin story to the sword here, even origin to Aku and breaking the sword. I would imagine this had to go through Cartoon Network for approval. Well, the the origin of the sword uh, is taken partially from the show. So they show a chunk of that in a two-part episode called Birth of Evil, which shows the, the origin of Aku. And so we used material from that and then expanded upon it. So it wasn't, we weren't totally making it all up. It was partially based around those two episodes. And those episodes actually won the Samurai Jack team a daytime Emmy. Like they were, oh, they were the that. most award-winning episodes of the series. And so I felt we were being pretty cocky even going back to that material and saying, hey, let's add to yeah. that. You, know? but you didn't do a good enough were, job. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, we could go further, you know, like, that's pretty cocky stuff, Zub, you know, but uh, we uh, we felt really good about, you know, the, the idea and that we could use what was there and build on it without it just being a retread. And so the Birth of Evil two-parter works its way in there, and we we recap aspects of it, but in a way that if you've never seen those episodes before, it still works uh, telling you what you need to know. And if you have seen those episodes before, you're getting a little bit more that you didn't see last time. So 
What I yeah. really liked about it is the way that you wrote it too about Jack having to prove himself because he didn't actually earn the sword. It was bequeathed to him. So it kind of threw right. a spin on the character because we've seen Jack so much mm. and we've always seen him as worthy because of his actions, but we've never actually had to question whether he was deserving of the sword, whether he'd actually earned it. So to for you to take that and put the spin on it where now despite everything that he's done in the past he has to prove that he's still worthy of it i thought was really quite ingenious and made us again appreciate who he's become and not just who we've always known him to be right and that that was really important to me too this idea of you know legacy is obviously a really powerful storytelling theme and you know there's one thing that that fiction readers love they love this like they love dynasties they love this idea of the king and the prince and the princess and this idea that you get stuff because you were born into this family you know what i mean and it's funny that in real life we generally don't like dictators and we don't like kings like America is not a country where they're like, yeah, we love our kings. I mean, you know, that's kind of the whole point was that we, they left the monarchy behind. But be damned if you don't love stories about it. Like, you love this idea of destiny and characters, they're the chosen ones. And so one of my kind of the things I wanted to question was that idea of, you know, Jack was given this sword, and he is a capable warrior, but it's not his sword. It's his father's sword. And he... Has ne- that's never been questioned before, you know what I mean? And so how can we show, in a sense, that he earns it or he's going to, for lack of a better term, get his own sword? Because in a sense, that's sort of what's happened now, even though it is aspects of it are the same, you know what I mean? But it's about you are your own person. You're not just your parents' legacy. You are your own hero in this case. And I think that that's... That's powerful storytelling, you know, fodder. And I'm glad we were able to to do it and kind of get get away with it, I guess, you know, in the sense that we were allowed to make this. Although in the end, he's got a sword and, they, you know, things are in some ways back to normal. There is kind of a paradigm shift in the sense that we've shaken up maybe your thoughts about how the character was or, or who they are. You know what I mean? As we've seen, Jack just keeps getting better and better with each story arc. Is IDW still renewing it in five-issue chunks? Um, oh, so I guess by the time this interview goes out, it will be <laughs> public. Uh, issue 20 is our last issue. Oh, dude. Uh, it makes me very, very, very sad. Um, that's not cool. We, no, I know. Trust me. So that's... Yeah, that's going to be news very soon. Um, we've been talking about this for a little while, uh, you know, how long the series would run. And I, I told them I would write it as long as they'd have me. And everyone's really happy with the series. It was more of just the economic kind of realities. The monthlies are selling okay, but not fantastic. The trades are doing well, but it's a long tail. And they kind of looked and said, okay, <clears throat> we could do 25 and there's a chance that it might kind of dip below a financial level where it would work and they didn't want to end it in the middle of a, of a five. So they said, okay, let's, let's stop at 20. And so, uh, no word of a lie over the weekend. I wrote the last Samurai Jack script. So that's, oh, that's dude. finished. Oh yeah. You just gave me a yeah. side. Uh, I know. I don't want to do the rest Trust- of the interview anymore. <laughs> I know. 
Please so inform your bosses. Talk- we don't approve. <laughs> nice. You know what was really funny, though, was I realized that after we finished the uh, quest for the Broken Blade, that that was probably going to be the most epic thing that we were going to write for the series. And that I kind of painted myself into a corner. I'm like, how do I end now that I've done this huge story? Like, what's left to tell, in a sense? And so um, I was already thinking about this kind of in the back of my mind, like, I better figure out what our topper is or how we can end on a big note. Otherwise, I'm going to get myself really hooped when they do finally tell me that the last issue is coming. And it was just over the course of this was, you know, a couple months ago. uh, I was just thinking and I just had gone for a walk and I was running some errands. and All of a sudden it dawned on me, Okay, I actually know how I can end the series. I know what we can say. And without trying to sound too cocky, because things are still in limbo about whether or not they'll do a Samurai Jack movie or whether or not they're going to do more animation or whether or not, you know, Gendy's going to get back to it. If, if, if this has to be the last Samurai Jack story, what do we want to say? That he goes and home. so I came up with something, and that was, that was tough. That was like, what is the definitive statement or what needs to be done in order to make this work? And I, I, um, I was going to actually tell my editor the next week, okay, by the way, if we ever need to pull the trigger, I've got the story. And he literally called me like out of the blue and just said, Jim, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to wrap up at 20. I said, well, the good news is I know how <laughs> we're going to do it. And he's like, really? That's he's like, a- I was just going to say I can give you some extra time because I know this is going to be really stressful. And I said, I, I actually was thinking about this over the weekend and I've got it all. And here's how I'll do it. And I just verbally pitched it to him right there. And he just paused and he goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's the stuff. And I was like, OK, good. And so we sent it to Cartoon Network and we were kind of nervous about it because it's it's pretty big uh, and they enthusiastically approved it. So I will tell you that although the series is ending at 20, um, all of us on the team are super, super proud well, you of should be. the story that's coming. So oh. um, I hope you guys are are stoked to read it because it's going to be it's going to be really special. So. Damn you. You're going to make me cry up. Damn you. Oh, you have no idea. It was the weirdest feeling. I got done the script and uh, just over the weekend, like I, I did the first draft of it last week and my editor called me on Friday and he was like, I think it's amazing. You know, here's the only uh, minor thing. And we sort of went back and forth and we rewrote a scene uh, based on sort of his feedback, which was brilliantly good. And then I put the finishing touches on it over the weekend and I sent the draft back in. And uh, and I went downstairs and I just said to my wife, I was like, I just I just finished. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I feel really weird because this has honestly been one of the most satisfying projects I've ever worked on. And most of the time, it never felt like work for hire. Like, it very much felt like we were able to just run with our crazy ideas and play in the sandbox. And Cartoon Network just let us kind of run wild. And everyone was super enthusiastic. And I was just like, I just feel so fortunate that we had the chance to do this, you know, and let alone to do it with Andy, who's one of the designers on the show and to have the fans really dig in and and like what we're doing. You know, it's the best case kind of scenario. And so I feel like without trying to be corny, like, you know, at least we're ending on a high note and everyone loves what we're doing and we didn't wear out our welcome. 
and we're going to make something, you know, awesome that just stands on. You can't own, make you know? this sound good. I know you're trying. You're trying your damnness <laughs> to make this sound like a positive thing, and it's just <clears> not what going I'm to work. What I'm trying to tell you is, if, you know, if the fan base rallied and went all crazy and, and bought tons of copies, and they they said, Jim, we were wrong. We were wrong. You got to keep going. Uh, I would not be displeased by any measure. We are going to work on that but, for you. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not like it's impossible that there will be other Samurai Jack stories. It's just for the time being, the series is wrapping up and all of us, you know, are trying to make sure that we do something definitively awesome to finish it. Okay. And now so, that being that, said, yeah. you're saying that you're writing this epic story ending are you leaving yeah. it open enough without telling us too much because i know you can't but open enough that if it does <laughs> come up you can actually write other stories without doing flashbacks yeah yeah we um yes yes we can the i had another five part epic planned out for 21 to 25 originally so 20 wasn't originally going to be that final issue it was just going to be a one-off kind of goofy story and then um 21 to 25 was going to be a another big one and although it wasn't going to be like the broken blade that we i came up with a story idea that was almost as ridiculous in terms of its scope and i'm i'm still super proud of it uh yeah i would love to write that someday if we got to do another miniseries or if we did it as a graphic novel or something i would be absolutely thrilled and and the story that we're telling in 20 does not um count out any other story any so, chatter about any hardcover collections of all 20 issues coming out? Uh, I, you know, I pretty much told Carlos, like, if you guys are ending at 20, you better do a damn hardcover. <laughs> and he <laughs> said that that was, you know, he, he wasn't saying yes immediately, but he basically said that he doesn't see why they wouldn't do that. You know, so add that to your list for the stuff that I good, have to yeah. send me. Just add it to the list. Yeah, yeah, right? Um, so if you guys know your Samurai Jack lore, uh, I will give you a hint about, about 20. Cool. So it's it's one of the most kind of infamous episodes, especially after the series wrapped up. So there's an episode of Samurai Jack called Jack and the Traveling Creatures. And in that particular episode, there's this portal to the past guarded by this uh, kind of blue guy this portal guardian and what makes that episode so amazing is at the very end he's you know he fights jack to a standstill and he says you are not the man who is going to pass through this portal and jack fights and fights and fights this is epic crazy fight scene and at the very end of it um he says you know jack actually loses and leaves it's one of the only episodes where jack full-on loses in a battle and when he leaves the portal guardian basically says I told you, you're not the guy that's going to pass through this portal. And then they show a vision of who that person is. And it's basically Jack in the crazy future, almost like the King Conan to his Conan. And he's wearing a crown and he's leading a freaking army. And you're like, holy crap, Jack is going to be this like old badass with a beard. Old man Logan. An army, <laughs> like old man Logan or something. <laughs> and they never touch upon that again in the series. It's just like this kind of throwaway moment at the end of the episode. And so I said, the final issue of Samurai Jack has got to be about that Jack. It's got to be about oh, the Jack dude. that wears the crown and that. That is what the last issue has got to be about. And it's pretty ballsy. Uh, we, we take it to the hoop. Let's just say that. 
So Man. there are not a lot of people who can talk to us about things that they're working on and things like that, that, that evoke this much emotion and excitement. And well, thank you. just hearing that has got me excited to read. Yeah. This. Okay. You want you to should go, go rewatch that episode. Oh, I will be now. I, I know which one you're talking about though, but I will definitely be it's watching it again. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the, those last five minutes, it's going to get you stoked. And it was so funny. Cause I said to Andy, I said, Jack, like old grizzled crown crazy, you know, this sort of thing. And he was like, Oh yeah, I remember that episode. And then I sent him the ref again. And he was like, Oh yeah, dude, dude, this is going to be crazy. And he did the cover for that issue. And it's like, yeah, it's great. That's all I can say. It's, uh, <laughs> we're ending on a high note. It's going to be super solid. So actually I will, <laughs> I'm going to send you an email because I know you're not going to remember all these. <laughs> Are you going to be getting <laughs> yeah. copies of that, uh, that last issue? And uh, yeah, I mean, I get sent comps from IDW of each one. So. Because if you have some spares, I would buy a bunch <laughs> from you like we did from the other ones. And I would draw those sure, off for yeah. some of our listeners. That would be, oh, great, be great to send off. Yeah, uh, but I think both Andy and I are going to be at um, Emerald City. And he does amazing sketches and stuff as well on the fly. I, he's just, yeah. he's one of the fastest artists I've ever seen. He is so good. Uh, Andy's actually doing issue 18 solo. So he wrote and drew the story for issue 18. Cool. So, um, yeah, there, so there's a funny anecdote. So, you know, Andy was one of the original production staff on Samurai Jack. And, uh, right after the reason why he's drawing the comic is because right after they announced that IDW had the license, he actually got in touch with them. And said, you know, Jack was literally the first project I worked on out of school. Uh, you know, it's near and dear to my heart. I'm a comic artist now, as well as an animator, and I would love to be involved with this. And so he basically kind of pitched them, like, let me draw this. And they were like, geez, you're one of the guys that designed the show. Uh, duh, yeah. Yeah, really. You can totally draw this. Um, and so because he was involved really early, he was also one of the people that saw all the writing pitches come in. So there were multiple, I think there were six or seven writers that pitched to do Jack. And so uh, last year at Emerald City Comic Con, I was there with Andy. Uh, we were hanging out and we were signing Jack issues for people. They did an actual convention exclusive of Jack number one at Emerald. And so we were signing that for fans and we were uh, set up side by side. And we were yakking up a storm. And this, this totally blew me away. Uh, a fan came over and they asked me, how did I get the, the writing gig? And I said, well, you know, uh, I, I just, I was one of the writers that they asked to pitch on it. There were multiple writers. I think there were six or seven, but I don't know who any of them were. And mine was the one that Cartoon Network and, um, you know, and Gendy Tartakovsky picked. And he was, uh, and the fan was like, oh, that's so cool. And then the guy walked away and Andy looks over at me and he goes, you know, I, I was involved in that pitching process too. And I said, Oh, you saw all the pitches. He's like, yeah. And I was like, that's so cool. And he goes, yeah, you had the best pitch. I was like, Oh, thank you so much. And he goes, you know who else had a pitch in there? And I was like, who? And he goes, me. Oh, Andy Suriano. <laughs> I was like, hold on. You had a writing pitch in there. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a pitch. This is how we should do the book. And my pitch lost to yours. Oh God. I was like, you worked on the show. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And he just started laughing, and I was so nervous. I was like, 
holy crap, Andy, I'm sorry. He's like, don't be sorry. Your pitch was better. He's like, I read your pitch. And I said, I want to draw this more than I want to draw my oh, own story. Idea. Good man. Good man. I was like, oh, my God. It was just it totally like gave me goosebumps. It was the craziest. Talk about validation. The aspect of that show. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was un- unbelievable. It was one of the coolest moments I've had. And uh, Andy's one of the coolest guys. He's amazing. So. In a similar sort of finale sense, we have the final arc of Skull Kickers coming up as well. How does yeah. that feel? Yeah. That feels absolutely bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, uh, Skull Kickers is the book that, I mean, it's, it's essentially created my comic writing career, for lack of a better term. And uh, nothing else would have happened without it. And so... You know, it's been this five-year journey, and we've been working our butts off on it. And we'd known for quite a while that we were going to end it at arc six, but it never felt real. It just felt like an abstract. Oh yeah, arc six, that thing off in the distance. <laughs> and now we're here, and I'm in the midst of production on it. You know, one issue is done, and it'll be coming out in March. Uh, you know, and and the second issue is well underway, and. I'm finishing the script on three and four and it's like, it, it hasn't really hit me yet. Like it doesn't feel real still that it's ending. I think once I get the last script written, it'll start to press down on me that this is coming to an end. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel real yet. I don't know how else to say it. It's sort of like, it's still just enough out of reach that I can sort of go, yeah, yeah, it's ending. But, you know, inside it's not because <laughs> pages are still coming in. We're good. You know, I just did the letter proof on the first part of the arc. We're fine. It's just like normal. Only more stupid stuff happened. You know, so um, it, it, it's happening, but it doesn't feel quite final at this point. Uh, you know, all the covers are done. So the solicits, I've got one more solicit to hand in to image that'll be next month and i've got a joke that i'm hoping that they'll let us get away with uh, <laughs> so, with the stuff they I, let fraction get away with i think you'll be okay well it's not about but we're, it's not a mature readers kind of joke it's more like you know in the same way that we did those reboot number ones like yes those it there let's just put it this way a lot of people love those but there was a segment of people that really hated those. Really? <laughs> a lot. We call them like, losers. Like, not even readers. <laughs> we call them well, assholes. Not even readers. I'm talking like, they, they were, there was problems. <laughs> and so I have an idea that in a similar vein, we're going to do something kind of audaciously stupid with the last one. And I'm curious if we'll get the get the all clear If on you're it. doing an uh, AVX think, rip or making fun of them for stuff no. like that, Oh, that would be awesome. I think it, it, it'll be something special. So I'm hoping that we're all good. I'm, I'm, you know, when I did the number ones, I gave them a heads up. I was like, oh, by the way, the solicit coming in next week is going to have this. And they were like, what? And I said, we're going to do five new number ones in five months. And they were like, why the hell are you doing that? I'm like, because it's awesome. And it's stupid. <laughs> and that's comics. And that's why we need to do it, because everyone else is ridiculous. And we need to call them on it. And so we're kind of doing that here. We'll see. We'll see if they 
We'll see. Anyways, I'm hopeful that we'll get. I'm assuming they'll let us do it. Just like, oh, it's your last issue. Just piss off. Just whatever. You know, You've already like, burnt your bridge. <laughs> yeah, basically, I've done the damage already. So. You joke about the, the the relaunch gags, but you know it's still happening. Like you know, Marvel just announced the all new all new Avengers, so they didn't get the joke apparently. The all new all yeah, I love it I mean, though. Granted, it was kind because... of a typo, but that was the most zub thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was amazing. Like I loved. Um... I still get even the Marvel guys. They told me they thought that was really funny. You know, they know they've got a sense of humor about yeah. it. They know it's ridiculous. They know it's it's all part of the kind of there, there is a smoke and mirrors element to selling the stuff. But Stan Lee had that when they would do all sorts of crazy branding and Excelsior kind of kookiness. Like this is not unfounded by any means. You know, it comes the they come by it honestly. You know, I'm just kind of making fun of them for it. And then you also look at it, and Skull Kicker's big blow-off is this giant interdimensional insanity, and we have Convergence and <laughs> Secret Wars coming oh, yeah. up. This I can't time. believe like, they're both happening at the same time. I got both, admit, no, not both. It, like, it feels, yeah, it feels very um, it feels very deep impact by way of Armageddon. Like, it's kind of, oh, guys, I hope this all works out for everybody, you know? Like, uh, for comic's sake, I hope we don't all burn the bridge here. You know, I, I'm fine. <laughs> Our series is ending, yeah. <laughs> not coming back. You, you guys have an actual audience you need to care about after this, you know? So here's You're, hoping that it all goes okay. Looking forward, you've got Munchkins coming out from Boom Studios. Give us a rundown on that yeah, project. That, so I'm doing just backup stories on that. So the, the um, you know, we did the Munchkin Skull Kickers uh, a few years back with Steve Jackson Games. We did a, it, it was a, uh, an expansion pack for Munchkin with uh, 16 cards that were Skull Kickers themed and they were awesome to work with. And ever since then, uh, the Steve Jackson people have been just really big supporters and good friends. And so they've stayed in touch and they let me know pretty early on that they were trying to get a comic made of, of Munchkin. And I said, let me know how it goes. You know, I'd be happy to be involved. And the timing on it when they first told me was, abysmally terrible. I was doing like six different books. I was, you know, Wayward Skull Kickers, Samurai Jack, and uh, I was still working on Figment at that point, and D&D was just getting going, and I was doing Conan Red Sonja. And so I was absolutely full to the brim, and I said, there's no way I can write Munchkin. And so they said, okay, well, you know, we're going to have multiple stories. There's going to be like short stories and, and longer form ones can you do some shorts? And I said, you know, I'd be happy to. So I'm doing a bunch of like six page kind of gag stories that are appearing in Munchkin and they're a ton of fun. And I'm, and I'm a big fan of the game and the lore and it is absolutely ridiculous and plays off of all the kind of gaming stuff I love. So I got to tap into that and do these kind of uh, one-off riffs. And each one that I do is kind of riffing on a different Munchkin set so there's like one that is all built around the Munchkin Cthulhu stuff that they did. There's another one that is um, uh, that is all about the pirate Munchkin stuff and and things like that. And so it was just a way for us to kind of play with <clears throat> their toys, really. And they've been just awesome. Uh, 
the, the book's a lot of fun. You know, each issue is being, uh, it comes with a, with a new card. Yeah. I saw so that. the players of Pushkin are going to go crazy for it. Cause they're super obsessive compulsive about this stuff. And we're not compulsive way. card collectors are awesome people. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're no, not compulsive. I love it too. Right. <laughs> Trust me. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a collector of all kinds of awesome stuff. Yeah. So I get it. You know? Um, so yeah, I'm super excited for it, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And it'll, I think it works both ways. Like, if if you're a gamer, you're going to love it. But if you're just a fantasy fan, or you just love fun kind of kooky stories, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And I think it's everyone's going to kind of win in terms of them being able to get their brand out to new people, but also the Munchkin fans getting into comics. I think you know if you're not a comic reader you're going to walk into the store and, and try some of this stuff out in a good way. So we need more uh, of that cross promotion. And the good thing is, is that it's almost like you're playing with kind of Looney tunes or, or Disney stuff where you, you just doing these one-off kind of stories. Like you don't have to worry about continuity for next time. So you can just kill people and do ridiculous things. Cause, cause it's okay. Cause next time, you know, it's like coyote always South comes Park back or the Simpsons. You just, you coming back for the next one, you know, that's awesome. Anything else coming up that you want to plug? Um, I'm still doing, uh, I mean, the Conan Red Sonja miniseries is, um, you know, still underway. The mm-hmm. first issue came out. The response has been amazing. People have been super, super supportive. Uh, working on that was an absolute thrill. I got to write two of the biggest characters in fantasy ever. And uh, I feel very, very fortunate to have been a part of that. It's just been an amazing experience. And, the Conan and Red Sonja fans are like super rabid and to have their enthusiastic response has been just, just awesome. Um, so that's four issues and it'll be coming out, you know, January, February, April, March, um, and then collected later on. And then, uh, I'm still doing the, um, I'm doing the, the, the comic tie in for the, um, ultimate Spider-Man cartoon for Marvel. Mm-hmm. So I write these little short stories that show up in Marvel magazine. And I think they're going to be printed in their own sort of digest or awesome. comic later on. I've, I've already banked like 10 of them. So before what's funny is the way they came about was really kind of odd. And it's one of those weird kind of licensing things where most of the cartoon kind of tie in comics or things like that, they don't sell really well in North America because people want to buy the, the regular books. But overseas, particularly in the foreign markets, they do very, very well. And so a lot of Marvel's kind of foreign licensors were wondering why they didn't have a tie-in comic. And it just the discussion kept coming up like we should really have a tie-in book for this series. And they finally decided they would do it. And they were actually going to print it foreign first. So it's coming out in German and French and Spanish before it ever comes out in English, even though we're doing it in English. Um, so yeah, those are a ton of fun to, to do. Cause I get to do Spider-Man for crying out loud. Yeah. And, uh, and ultimate one too. I get, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, again, for anybody who's listened to this interview, there was only so many comics we could talk about. <laughs> so that's why we didn't <laughs> no, cover all of these other ones. We're already clocking in longer than I was hoping or not hoping, but that I wanted to keep you. So yeah, there's so yeah, many yeah, other things that you're, that. no, no, not you. Are you kidding me? I'd keep you all night if you wanted <laughs> nice. to, but no, it's <laughs> no, just, it's, there's, no, it's, it's been good. There's know? so many I think the things. Jack 
thing threw you guys off. That no, was no, no, no. I, well, yeah, you kind of ruined our day, but that's another thing. But no, I was, I've been looking through all of the stuff that you're working on and the stuff like Pathfinder <laughs> and D&D and, and stuff like that we didn't really touch on, but we are still very yeah. passionate about those titles. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I, it's been great. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's weird. I've got, I've got some pitches in that I'm waiting to hear back about, and I've got some other projects that are sort of just in the kind of development stage, so nothing to announce, but stuff that hopefully will, you know, uh, move forward. So that's a kind of a, an interesting phase where you're, you've got stuff you're working on, but you don't know when you'll be able to talk about it. And so you just kind of got to keep your head down and keep working away and, and hope that they pop at some point, you know? One of the things that did catch my attention, and see, I keep going back instead of wrapping this up, but it's this <laughs> the Suicide Squad Amanda Waller one. I actually haven't yeah, read yeah. this yet. I'm going to have to dig this up. What was that like writing? Um, that was a really neat experience. So I got contacted uh, by um, Will Moss, and he said that they wanted to do a series of these uh, one-shots, and one of them was going to be around Amanda Waller. And um, I guess this is sort of... I had previously done a Suicide Squad uh, inventory script. So when the new 52 started, one of the most important aspects was that they had to come out on time. The books were all going to be monthly. They weren't going to have late books. And so for the first time in a long time, they actually had inventory scripts. They had done-in-one stories that were in the, the, the archives just in case a book was running late and they needed to swap one in, which they hadn't done in years. Um, and so they had asked me to write a Suicide Squad done in one, and I was sort of in the wings that if they were going to change Suicide Squad writers uh, later, I was one of the people in the running. So I'd done the Suicide Squad script, and Will had read it, and he really liked it, and he said, I want you to write this Amanda Waller story. Um, and they didn't quite know what they wanted it to be about, but they wanted to reveal more about her character and sort of get, make her more three-dimensional than just sort of the this angry kind of vengeful character they had been, you know, had had in the comics. (sighs) So I read up on all the ref material they had for her and, and, you know, came up with this story idea. And uh, after I pitched it, originally it was just supposed to be 20, 22 pages. They told me, oh, it's going to be 36, I think. And so all of a sudden I had this much bigger page count and I could really expand upon it and delve in deeper than I had originally planned, which was an unexpected luxury. Normally you're getting told to cut things. And then I was told, no, no, you got more space, let it breathe. So that was pretty cool. I'm going to have to find that. That And then as soon as we started working on it, Will actually left DC. He moved over to Marvel because they had announced that they were moving to Burbank. And so he wanted to stay in New York. And so he shifted over to Marvel and the book got handed off to Brian Cunningham, another editor at DC. Brian and I had never worked before and to be 100% honest, Brian was super, super busy and, uh, you know, I, like the term dumped on his lap, like he he hadn't expected to work on this book. So he kind of came into it late and now all of a sudden I knew more about the book than he did. So it was this weird sort of thing where we just had to kind of run with it and we were both kind of like sprinting all the way through production on it. And it turned out really good, like considering how crazy it ended up getting it all turned out really well and we're all super proud of it but it was this weird kind of like flying by the seat of our pants okay it's happening we got to do it now like we got to go and it was just sort of like under the gun let's rock it out and i think that in some ways the momentum that we had carried through into the book and the book's got a very kind of run and gun action feel to it that i think it comes very naturally because we were sort of feeling the pressure 
okay, we got to knock this sucker out, you know? That's awesome. Okay. Vince and yeah. I, when we were discussing this 200th episode, we were trying to figure out kind of what theme we'd go with and all that, because you don't want to just discuss new comics and have it like every other episode. And one of the things we were right. thinking of doing was doing like origin stories and whatnot. And Vince had talked about doing influential comics from when we were young. And no sooner does he suggest <laughs> that, that you come up with four comics. Did right. you expect that to catch on as much as it did? No. Because it kind of no, took on a mind weird. of its own. Yeah, that was super weird. Uh, what happened was I, yeah, really just spontaneous kind of weird thing. You know, sometimes you're just tweeting or whatever and you just kind of, hey, this thing, you know, this idea or this concept or this whatever thought that hits your mind. And that's what's great about Twitter is the good and the bad of it is you just spout what you're thinking in the moment. And hopefully you don't say something that you'll regret. But when it works, man. Uh, so I tweeted about, hey, these are four comics that meant something to me growing up. I just threw that hashtag on it because you throw hashtags on things. And, um, and then I, I, maybe 15 minutes later, I was heading to bed because it was like almost midnight. And I just said, yeah, there's my comics. And a couple of people responded and they tweeted their comics and I retweeted them. And I thought, that's cool. A couple of people <laughs> posted some comics. And then I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I didn't realize uh, the little Twitter notification, it, it won't count any higher than 99. So it says, you have more than 99 <laughs> notifications. And I was like, what? What is what? Who I've did never I piss seen off? that before because <laughs> nothing I had ever done had ever been like that, and so I didn't even know you could you could do that. And so I just started looking, and I realized, oh man, this thing is nuts because there was the the hundreds of people that had included me in their tweet, but then there were hundreds of people who had just used the hashtag on its own, and it had just taken on a life of its own and and just going going going, and all of a sudden a bunch of my friends. I knew it was something crazy when a bunch of my friends were using the hashtag without tweeting me. <laughs> I was like, they didn't know the origin. Well, that's yeah. They literally had no idea where it had come from. And so I started laughing. I was like, wow, like dear friends of mine are using this. <laughs> and I completely unironically like, this is the coolest thing. And I was just like, well, this is ridiculous. You know, at that point I knew we had something pretty outrageous going you're here with us on our 200th, and it could not be more telling that we should do this here now. So seeing as this is your baby, we'll start with you. What are your four comics? So these are the four that I tweeted. And they're, they're not – what was nice about it was they're not seminal issues. They're not like Watchmen or something. Mm-hmm. They're, they're more random kind of ridiculous issues uh, that meant something to me growing up. So – the first one that I tweeted about was uh, Doctor Strange 55. So it's this uh, – Doctor Strange, one of my favorite Marvel characters of all time. Um, and, the re- you know, my fantasy – my love of fantasy, thick, everyone knows it. And you've got a character who's, who's a superhero and he's a freaking wizard. So he's the best. So love Doctor Strange, read that comic like crazy growing up. And then this particular issue, uh, if you've never read it, it's one of the best ever. Um, it's Michael Golden on art. And at that time, every Michael Golden issue, his issues were even rarer than like Art Adams issues. Like they were just everyone loved them and everyone sort of worshipped the ground he walked on because the storytelling is perfect. And it's got this really particular style that's beautiful and elegant. And every panel feels like a piece of art. And it's the story of um, basically Clea, 
uh, Doctor Strange's assistant, who's been a staple of the series the entire time, almost since Doctor Strange began, leaves and uh, is no longer his apprentice. She leaves him, and they were not only uh, teacher and student, but they were like lovers, and it was this huge issue where he basically goes through this loss, and he falls into this deep, deep depression and uh, contemplates killing himself. And it, it cuts through to his origin and it cuts through to who he is and why he's a hero and it's emotional and it's intense. And in some pages it's ridiculous because it goes into these surrealistic landscapes of his imagination and it's beautifully, beautifully presented. And uh, when I was a kid, it knocked me out. I had never read a story like that before. And it was one of the first times that I read a comic and I said, this art is better than any other comic I've ever seen who drew this and how do I find everything they drew ever? <laughs> I don't care what comic they drew. It was, it was that transition from, I read about characters to I want to know who the creators are. And that's why that one just so friggin' important to me. Uh, the second one is um, GI Joe 21. GI Joe was the series that got me into collecting comics. I was watching the cartoon growing up and at the end of every episode, they would have a little, spinning logo thing after the credits and say buy the marvel comic and i just went yes master and i went forth and i started buying the comics <laughs> and i got obsessed with comics and of course it was published by marvel which then got me into the marvel universe and i started collecting spider-man from there and, and whatnot so gi joe is really my touchstone for being a comic fan at all in many ways i'd read other comics before that but that was the stuff that got me collecting and gi joe 21 is the is a silent issue so there's no words or sound effects. And the storytelling is immaculate. And even though it's a silent issue and you could flip through it in a, a minute, you don't. You, you pour over every single page and you laboriously look at every single panel. And the expressions of the characters take on so much more meaning because of the quality of the drawing and the quality of the storytelling. And the silence makes it amazing. It's 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 nowadays it's kind of a gimmick, but at the time I can't think of any other comic I had seen that had ever done that before. And a lot of other people mentioned it as being a, an issue that really stood out. And even though you've got this licensed comic based on a cartoon series, this comic feels it was it was better than the cartoon series. It was deeper, it was darker, it was more emotional than anything they would have ever done in the cartoon, and it just totally whipped ass. And so that's why that one's on there. Um, my third one is uh, an Amazing Spider-Man issue. It's Amazing Spider-Man 230, and it's Spider-Man fighting Juggernaut. And, yes. you know, as much as we think of Spider-Man as being the, you know, the, the marquee hero at Marvel, I don't know, in the 80s, he never felt that way because he was a street-level hero. He was always that lovable loser, you know, and that's the Peter Parker kind of mentality. And so, you know... Fantastic Four and the Avengers, they fight Galactus and Spider-Man, you know, he punches out the chameleon. Like that's, he's fighting the guy with the fishbowl on his head. That's Spider-Man. He doesn't Somebody do has the to big do it. stuff. No, right. And <laughs> yeah. He's awesome. And that's why I love that character. But he's the street level superhero. He doesn't fight big, crazy threats. And Juggernaut literally can fight the entire X-Men to a standstill. And they're super badasses. And then the juggernaut shows up in Spider-Man, and I think, I'm just a kid. I'm like, this is impossible. 
Spider-Man's dead. Like he's just going to get smashed into mush. There's no possible way this can happen. I was absolutely riveted reading this two-parter. I could not deal with how epic it was and how incredible it was. Like Spider-Man pulling out all the stops and digging deeper than he'd ever dug. And it's like the ultimate kind of underdog story. And it was just so cool to me. And it, you know, it, it was that tie-in of, oh, look, the Marvel Universe is all connected. Here's this X-Men villain showing up in Spider-Man. But it was also, Spider-Man is going to take this dude out who could totally take out the entire X-Men team. And he's going to do it because he's smart and because he's courageous and because he thinks outside of the box. And I think that that, it stuck with me in terms of action, in terms of intensity. And it's one of my favorite comics. Uh, and the last one, is um, an X-Men issue, Uncanny X-Men um, issue 190. <clears throat> and it's it's this weird otherworldly issue where this villain, the sorcerer Cullen Gath, has sort of like remade reality and turned the whole world, maybe it's just Manhattan, I can't remember. In my mind, it's the whole world, but it might have just been Manhattan, into a fantasy world. And so you have the Avengers and the X-Men, and Spider-Man, and they're all fantasy characters. So, like, Captain America's like this barbarian, and Spider-Man's like this half-spider demon. And so, you know, it's my two favorite things put together. It's fantasy stuff mixed with superheroes. It was like pure crack cocaine to me as a kid. I was just like, can they have, like, a hundred issues of this? Can they have a hundred issues of, like, Nightcrawler the Assassin with a scimitar and, like, Wolverine, this badass barbarian. Like, can we just never have them go back to reality? Can we just have, <laughs> have fantasy story to Marvel forever? I, you know, I would love to. I actually sent a tweet to <laughs> Axel, and I said, "Is there room in Battle World for X Men 160 World? You know, can we have all that crazy crap show up again? Because that is so awesome." It was also like, um, it w- I was torn between posting that one and posting the. Um, the, the Art Adams X-Men annual where they go to Asgard, you know, the one mm-hmm. where Storm gets her powers back by becoming the God of Thunder and Loki is messing with them and all that. Those two annuals, the New Mutants annual that year and the X-Men annual where, they, they, where they're adventuring in Asgard, that was also pure crack cocaine and it was Art Adams art. So it was like the best thing ever. And I literally, when they go back to, to Manhattan, I was like, boo. I want Adventures in Asgard with the X-Men forever. Never have them go home. They just, the portal closes and they're like, sorry guys, you can never return. Oops. Guess we have to do a thousand issues of this. (laughs) That would have been, that would have been the best comic. Uh, So yeah, those, those are my, I guess I just said five comics. Those are five comics. I broke my own hashtag. See, for me, uh, it's funny you're talking about, you know, Marvel's G.I. Joe series was really your introduction to, real comics well for me marvel's transformers series was my introduction to real yeah. comics like i have uh, on my list is transformers issue eight which is the dinobots issue so i'm a little kid i get this transformers I love that comic. Just a random issue yeah I love that and the dinobots are on the cover i'm like this is gonna be awesome i open it up it was awesome but at the same time, you've got like Ratchet exploring these Decepticon bases where dead Autobots are literally strung up by their ankles, having their energon drained. Like Megatron yeah, is walking around. Megatron's walking around with the severed head of Optimus Prime, like gloating. And I'm like, 
what the hell happened? <laughs> like, it just opened my eyes that there was a world of stories beyond cartoons. Uh, at the you same know what's time, what's funny is, is that, that sorry, I just want to tie in one quick thing. You know, sometimes they say like, oh, the comic stories aren't as important as the animation. Man, to a kid, they're all important. Yeah. They're all mm-hmm. just as equally amazing. You know, totally. See, at the same time, I also have uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issue twenty-four. Uh, it's the one where Raphael nice. finds the weird creature down deep in the sewers, and a friend had just brought it into school. He's like, "Hey, you know, Ninja Turtles were the biggest thing in the world at the time. Did you know they make Ninja Turtle comics?" I'm like, "Oh, awesome!" And we opened it up. And it just, <laughs> Did you and know they make Ninja Turtle comics? It blew oh, our mind. Well, because you know, it was the cartoon was popular at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we didn't know this little indie comic was coming out, and it just it blew our minds in the same way of that. There's this whole world of other stories out there, and like that became our fourth grade lunch ritual of just reading Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle issues. Awesome. I also have it's X Men Classic number fifty four, which is actually a reprint of uh, Uncanny X Men one fifty. It was, uh, you know, being 150, it was this huge double size issue. And this was not my first issue of X-Men, but it's really the first one that really gripped me. You know, I just saw it in the supermarket one day because that's back when you could buy comics at the supermarket. And, you know, it's got this great image of Magneto walking away with <laughs> unconscious Kitty Pride. It was this huge double size issue where the X-Men are rescuing Scott from Magneto's Island because this is right after the Dark Phoenix saga. So Scott's all, boo-hoo, my girlfriend's dead. And he goes off to live with Magneto. And there's a like a power dampening device. So as the X-Men are flying in, they lose all their powers. So 75% of the issue is just getting to know the X-Men themselves. You know, what's Wolverine without his healing factor? What's Colossus without his organic skin? You know, who's Storm without her weather manipulation? So it really let me learn a lot about those characters before the giant climactic battle at the end, which was awesome. Sweet. And then my final one, uh, I actually mentioned this previously on the podcast. We did our big what if issue and it was uh, what if issue 22 from the, uh, the second run of what if what if the Silver Surfer had never escaped Earth? And again, like all my comics are these big traumatic things happening. This is one where Johnny Storm gets blown apart into a thousand pieces. Like Mephisto is torturing them in hell. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> but this was really the first comic that made me look at comics artistically because you have the imagery of the Silver Surfer, you know, chromed out in the pits of hell with like the fire reflecting off his faces. And at the end, when he comes back as this radiant being, that was really the first comic for me that let me look at the comics from an artistic standpoint instead of just character and stories. So that's why those four are my big influential ones. Mine, I kind of took a little bit of liberty with this because because I you don't can't necessarily remember, what last remember. Week. Well, there is a little bit of that. Let's be honest. <laughs> but what the way that I looked at it was also the influential comics of a time in my life kind of thing. Cause I can look at when I was very young, I was a kid and like I was a newspaper boy in Northern Ontario kind of thing. And all my money went to buying comics and whatnot. But around that same time, and even a little before that, it was reading comics at the school. So every, I, I went to a French grade school and every school had the Asterix comics the entire library and I would spend quite literally as much free time as I had sitting down in the library, reading that, which then progressed to peanuts as well. 
And so that pre that, that before buying actual physical comics themselves um, from the, the corner store, it was those comics were the most important things and especially the asterisks because they had so many. And then eventually they got more of the peanuts and I, I delved into that library, but those were the, the important things to the point where even though I was not even yet 10, I decided I was going to be a cartoonist. Like it had that much of an impact on my life that somebody like you can create these things and draw and, and come up with the stories. And that's, that's what drove me for a very long time. And then when I was old enough and I had my paper out and I was buying comics, that was around the time of the, the new X-Men team. So the giant size number one was before that, but not mm. that far back that I'd actually gotten my hands on one way back in the day. And then the ones immediately thereafter with the team as well. And that was my real first introduction to comics was that team and everything that it meant and the importance of what each of the characters meant in a, a manner that was much broader than the experiences that you get from a North Canadian small mining town where everybody is a nice shade of milky white, you know? <laughs> so here you have the, the, it's not exactly racism being portrayed and all that, but it is that type of thing that you can correlate to what is actually happening in the world and whatnot. And so there were a lot of things the going on. The diversity of that team was huge. Yes, it was. It was a huge thing. Yep. And I don't think it's funny that, that Marvel didn't really capitalize on that in any other book. There's no other book that has that kind of international focus the way that that all new X Men team did. Yep, um, it, it was huge. I think that it, that's the reason, one of the reasons why the X Men was the best selling book eventually because it everyone could see themselves. They could see themselves as the you know as the the downtrodden. They could see themselves as the outsider. They could see themselves whatever race or color or creed they were. And it was a really powerful statement. The shift from the classic team to that new team was such a broad stroke of then and now. And it made such a huge difference in how that comic book was then perceived from that point forward. And the impact that it had, which was massive, absolutely massive. So, yeah. Meanwhile, My, if they did the same thing today and wrote off all the old X-Men and brought in a bunch of new people, they'd get spit roasted in the street. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, it's funny, you know, they, they did it, they did it, but then they, they played it very safe with like New Mutants or with, you know, Generation X where you're having a concurrent. So the other team's still around. You're just sort of saying, here's the new, new, you know, here's the other guys. Yeah. And it, but it's never obviously had the same, I mean, New Mutants did well and, you know, uh, um, Generation X does well, but it doesn't. It's not quite the same kind of watershed moment as that first time. Exactly. So. Yeah. And then my three and four are actually again at that point I was in my my teens and was the Frank Millers and that was the Dark Knight Returns and Miller's Wolverine miniseries. Nice. And that's just because of the importance that Miller had at that time in comics and. Like, again, I grew up in North Ontario, so for the 
for the most part, um, we were buying comics from the corner store. And I've told the story before where like me and my buddy were two of the few in our little town who read comic books and we would race in the morning to get to the corner store and whoever got an issue of something, they had it. The other person didn't. And that went on for a very long time, right up until my early teens. And so when when Miller came out, his stuff was right around the time when a comic book store opened in the bigger city closer to us. And we would literally bike there, 45 minutes to an hour biking to get there. But you could have it. And it was, again, that, that the Dark Knight Returns and especially the Wolverines. That series was so phenomenal and so different than everything else from that time and jarring. And, and again, it was that it really cemented that idea of collecting. It wasn't just a race against your buddy to see who gets what at this point. Now it's like, I can have all of these. I can choose and be, be picky and really work on this collection and not just take what's left over, but really seek out the greatness in comics, which at the time was Miller. So those are my two. Totally. So with that, we're done. I, I really hope you had a good time because I feel bad keeping you this long, <laughs> but you it's are okay. such an I was great. awesome guest that we would have you on every week. We love talking to you. We love the <laughs> work you're so doing and look forward to everything else that you're working on. We will always pimp your work on the show just because it is undeniably awesome every time. Thank you very much. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. And you know, one of the things that's been honestly really uh, heartwarming to me, especially over the last couple of years, has been, you know, getting to meet uh, people who enjoy what I'm doing and, and really uh, knowing that the stuff's getting out there and people are reading it and enjoying it. it. It makes a huge difference, you know. When you're writing this stuff, sometimes it can feel a bit like you're in a bubble. You don't know, you know, who's out there. And so social media is great, but, but hearing it in person is even better. So thank you so much. Anytime. Anytime.